Well, good morning. I always love that Nora Jones song because I feel like it strikes at the very heart of the human condition. Life humbles us. And if it hasn't humbled you yet, just wait, because it will. Just give it time. Our traumas, our challenges, our strained relationships, our regrets, our experiences, they do humble us. Maybe not like the person in the song, but in a variety of different ways. In fact, you might say that being humbled, being on our knees empty, is the door that opens an authentic spiritual life with God for us. And so I think that song is a great way to kick off our fall series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This teaching from Jesus is found from chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew in the Bible. And it was first called the Sermon on the Mount by an African pastor in the 5th century, and the title stuck, and that's what we call it today. These three chapters contain some of Jesus' most important teachings about spiritual life with God. It's in these three chapters that we hear some of Jesus' most memorable commands like let your light shine, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, store up treasures in heaven, seek first God's kingdom, judge not, enter through the narrow gate, and beware of false prophets, all from the Sermon on the Mount. No part of the Bible was more quoted by the early Christians of the first 500 years of church history than the Sermon on the Mount was quoted. Yet no part of Jesus' teaching has also been more avoided by Christians. In the Middle Ages, some people said that the Sermon on the Mount was too impossible a standard for ordinary Christians, best to leave it to the professionals, pastors and bishops, monks and nuns, ordinary Christians need not apply. During the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, Martin Luther said that the Sermon on the Mount was impossible to live by, that its only, its only function was to show us how far we fall from God's standards and how much we need grace. Ordinary Christians need not apply. In the late 19th century in the U.S., early dispensational theologians like John Darby and C.I. Schofield suggested that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't even apply to Christians at all, that it's intended for Jewish people living in Christ's future millennial kingdom after he comes again in glory. Ordinary Christians need not apply. Reminds me of a famous story uh, about a, a rather famous comedian who was seen reading a Bible one time, and he was not known for being particularly religious or spiritual. So someone asked him why he was reading the Bible, to which he responded, he was looking for loopholes. Well, that about sums up how many Christians today treat the Sermon on the Mount, looking for loopholes. We're calling this new series Reformed. Because Jesus' teaching in these three chapters is all about reforming us as people, reforming our relationships and our families, 
our affections and our priorities. Dallas Willard, Christian author Dallas Willard used to say that everyone has a spiritual formation, just like everyone gets an education. The question is whether it's a good one or a bad one. Everyone has been spiritually formed, but not all of that formation has been good formation. And so in these three chapters of Matthew, Jesus reveals where we've been malformed, misinformed, unformed, deformed, and he invites us to be reformed as part of our discipleship. And today we're going to start by talking about reforming our values as people. So if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Two distinct groups of people heard Jesus give this sermon. The first group is simply called the crowds. We might call the people in the crowd seekers. These are people who were drawn to Jesus, curious about Jesus for a variety of different reasons. And they included sick people. They included parents with, with children who were suffering, farmers being exploited by landowners. They included cynical religious leaders, young people deconstructing their faith, Roman spies out on reconnaissance, revolutionaries preparing to overthrow the government. Each seeker in the crowd had their own unique reason for being drawn to Jesus. And the only thing the crowds had in common is that they were drawn to Jesus. I want to suggest that a lot of people who attend churches today are like people in the crowds. The second group is simply called his disciples. In the ancient world, a disciple was an apprentice who followed a, a teacher's way of life. And so in ancient Greece, Socrates' students were called his disciples. 
Rabbis in ancient Judaism called their followers their disciples. So these are Jesus's disciples, the men and women who have stepped out of the crowd to trust and to follow Jesus and his way of life. The disciples are are men and women who have set aside their agenda to embrace the agenda of Jesus and the kingdom that he proclaims. We would call the disciples Christians, but you'll only find the word Christian three times in the whole Bible. But you'll find the word disciple 350 times. And as Jesus sits on the mountainside, he sees the crowds and he sees his disciples and he begins to teach. People often call verses 3 through 12 the Beatitudes. A a Beatitude is a statement of blessing. A, A Beatitude usually starts with the words, blessed are, fill in the blank. And many people treat the Beatitudes here as high ideals that we should be striving for in life. Some go so far as to say that the Beatitudes are a ladder that we climb towards spiritual maturity. But I think the Old Testament background to the Beatitudes suggests a really different idea than that. See, there's a close connection between the Beatitudes Jesus gives here And Isaiah chapter 61 in the Old Testament part of the Bible. Isaiah 61 is an ancient prophecy about how the promised Messiah, Jesus, would bring God's kingdom, God's rule and reign from heaven to earth. And the first beatitude about the poor in spirit echoes Isaiah 61's promise that the Messiah would proclaim good news to the poor. The second beatitude echoes Isaiah's promise that the Messiah would bring comfort to those who mourn. The fourth beatitude echoes Isaiah 61's promise that the Messiah Messiah would proclaim freedom for the captives and release to the prisoners. See, Isaiah 61 is all about the Messiah's mission, what he would do in bringing God's kingdom to earth. And in Jesus's very first recorded sermon earlier, he quotes Isaiah 61. In Dallas Willard's book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas suggests that the Beatitudes are tangible examples about how God's kingdom is showing up in our world now that Jesus has come. That Beatitudes are not commanding us to do anything. They're not ideals for us to try to reach for. They're examples of how the kingdom of God has arrived and is still arriving through Jesus. So today I want to relate these Beatitudes into three categories that relate to reforming our values. The first three Beatitudes, I think, are about reforming what we admire. What do we admire? Our world has formed us to admire values like strength, power, success. We follow leaders who are confident and assertive and say they know where they're going. We're drawn to people who have a little swagger in their step. 
We vote for politicians who project strength. We listen to pastors who speak with certainty. We follow leaders who assure us that they know exactly what needs to be done. Our world has spiritually formed us to admire these values, and often our churches have also formed us to admire these values as well. But when it comes to Jesus and God's kingdom, these values that we admire so much can actually become an obstacle. In the first beatitude, Jesus says that God's kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. In fact, Luke's version, Jesus simply says the poor. The the poor in spirit describe people who are economically poor and people who are spiritually destitute. And I, I think that Nora Jones song summarizes both of those ideas. The the poor in spirit are people who already know they're weak and vulnerable and helpless in the world. The the poor in spirit have enough regrets in their life to know that they've failed, that life has humbled them. The poor in spirit are the opposite of the powerful, the competent, the successful. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not because you can't be strong or influential to follow Jesus and enter the kingdom of God, but because when you're poor in spirit, you can see that you need Jesus and need his kingdom. Often the the values that we admire, values like power and strength and success and influence, blind us from our need for Jesus and our need for his kingdom. Those who mourn in the second beatitude are those whose hearts have been broken. The man I talked to recently told me he cried every day for a year when his wife left him. Or the mom I know who lost her 10-year-old son to a rare form of cancer. Or the widower who can't figure out how to live after his beloved wife of 50 years has passed away. Blessed are those who mourn, not because having your heart broken is a good thing, but because God's kingdom, when it arrives through Jesus, can even reach those whose hearts have been shattered and bring comfort. Blessed are the meek. Maybe you've heard the phrase, nice guys finish last. Well, that's the meek. People who finish last in life. People who others say aren't assertive enough or ambitious enough. In our world, the powerful often trample over the meek. And Jesus isn't saying that the meek are blessed because they're meek. He's saying that his kingdom is strong enough and powerful enough to reach even the meek. Jesus comes to the forgotten and the sidelined So much so that the meek are the ones that will one day be in positions of honor and authority. They'll they'll inherit the earth. See, these first three Beatitudes call into question some of the values we most admire in life. Values like power and strength, ambition and success. 
We need our values reformed because it's often the least likely who are the closest to God's kingdom. The least likely. The poor in spirit, the brokenhearted, the trampled upon who find themselves closest to Jesus. And again, Jesus invites everyone into his kingdom. All are welcome to step out of the crowd, to set aside their agenda and to trust and follow Jesus as a disciple of Jesus. But the poor in spirit, those who mourn and the meek tend to hear that call with greater clarity. They tend to have fewer obstacles standing between them and responding to that call. And blessed is the church that values the poor in spirit, the brokenhearted, and the meek. And woe to the church that only admires the strong, the powerful, and the successful. Churches that admire only strength tend to create organizations that reward the strong and ignore the weak. Churches that admire power tend to abuse power, idolize success, and trample over the vulnerable. They become places that lock their doors and lock their hearts to the very people that Jesus says are the closest to his kingdom. We need to have some of the values that we admire in life to be reformed by Jesus if we're going to live as his disciples in the world today. Beatitudes 4 through 7 focus on our desires, on what we desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 6 says. Few desires are stronger in life than the desire for food and the desire for, for drink when we're thirsty. And the word righteousness in that verse is important. In the Bible, this word righteousness, it can refer to being made right on the inside. That's often how we understand righteousness there. But just as often in the Bible, this word refers to justice, the world around us being made right. And I think Jesus is talking about both. Our desire to be right on the inside and our desire for the world around us to be made right. Blessed are those who know they're not right inwardly. And blessed are those who see that the world needs to be made right. Blessed are people who know, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who hungers and thirsts for justice most in our world? Well, often the people who've experienced the most injustice in our world. You see, Jesus is not saying that people are blessed because they lack righteousness or because they've been denied justice. We should never rejoice in unrighteousness. We should never be happy about injustice. These people who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed because Jesus says that someday they will be filled. That hunger will be satisfied. That thirst will be quenched. Because his kingdom is a righteous kingdom. His rule is a just rule. 
Those who desire righteousness, who yearn for change within themselves and in the world around them are the ones who are ready for the kingdom. What they desire readies them for the kingdom. Blessed are the merciful. Most people want to be merciful. We see suffering, we want to help. It could just as easily be us who are asking for money on a freeway off-ramp or crippled by enormous medical debt or all alone and failing health. But the sheer volume of suffering around us is overwhelming. So much so we experience compassion fatigue, which tempts us to make excuses for people's suffering or to, to turn the other way and not look at it. We desire to be merciful because we know that we ourselves need mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, verse 8. We want hearts that are right with God, hearts that are soft towards people, hearts that are motivated by love. I don't know of anybody who wants a heart that's disordered by sin or calloused or malformed because deep down we know it's the pure in heart who will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers. We desire restored relationships with people. We want broken relationships in our lives to be mended. We want friendships that are healthy, marriages that are loving, work relationships that are fair, churches that are unified. These four Beatitudes all focus on our desires, what we want, our desire for righteousness, for mercy, for purity of heart, for peace. But according to the Bible, all of our inner desires are malformed because of the power of sin. Our desire for righteousness can lead us down the path of violence or perpetrating injustice towards others. Our desire for mercy can turn us into people pleasers. Our desire for pure hearts can lead us in a never-ending quest towards the next self-improvement fad. Our desire to be peacemakers can tempt us to become peacekeepers, people who keep the peace in relationships at any cost. God has given us these deep desires, but they've become disordered and malformed because of sin. Nothing in our world can fulfill those desires. We cannot fulfill our deepest desires. Our deepest desires point us to Jesus and his kingdom. We can't fulfill them. They point us to Jesus. They're signposts pointing to something beyond ourselves. Our desire for righteousness points to Jesus and his righteous kingdom. Our desire to be merciful points to a compassionate God who will show us mercy. Our desire for pure hearts points to a God who can make hearts pure. Our desire for peace in our relationships points to a God who will adopt us into his family as his children. Our desires, our deepest desires, point us to someone beyond ourselves who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we are blessed when we allow our deepest desires to point us to Jesus and his kingdom. The, the last beatitude is about reforming what we expect in life, reforming what we expect. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Being persecuted for righteousness is suffering for what's right. It's the whistleblower who gets fired for blowing the whistle. It's the person who reports that they've been assaulted and then they're accused of making it up. But then in verse 11, Jesus breaks the pattern to directly address his disciples. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're blessed when people insult you because you follow Jesus. You're blessed when people speak lies about you because you trust in Jesus. What do we expect when we become followers of Jesus? What do we expect from this journey of discipleship? Our expectations may need to be reformed because following Jesus comes with a cost. Following Jesus comes with a cost. Being a disciple of Jesus does not unlock the door to a trouble-free life that's free from all suffering. There is no such thing in the world. Christian author Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote an entire book about the Sermon on the Mount. It's called The Cost of Discipleship, and its English translation is called in German just discipleship. And in that book, Bonhoeffer warns about what he calls cheap grace. Bonhoeffer says cheap grace is forgiveness without repentance, grace without discipleship. I can't think of a better way to describe much of the church in America today than that phrase, grace without discipleship. Cheap grace, grace without discipleship are like the crowds listening to Jesus, but who haven't yet stepped out of the crowd to trust and follow Jesus coming out of the crowd to follow Jesus comes with a cost, the cost of discipleship. So what do we value? And which of those values need to be reformed in this journey of discipleship? We all have a lot of things that we value. Values formed by our families and our teachers, our culture, the media that we consume. And some of these values we hold tightly to. After all, there are values. But if we want to come out of the crowd and live as disciples of Jesus, some of those values need to be reformed. Are you ready for that? Am I ready for that? Are we ready for that? You know, when we get to the very end of the sermon, In Matthew 7, 28, it says that the crowds were amazed at Jesus's teaching. They were impressed. They were inspired. But they stayed in the crowds. And many people today are like that. For us to come out of the crowd, our values need to be reformed. What we admire needs to include the poor in spirit, the brokenhearted, and the trampled upon. Because these are closer to God's kingdom than we often are. 
Our deepest desires will need to be acknowledged for what they are. Desires that we cannot fulfill ourselves, but that are pointing us to Jesus and his kingdom. And some of our expectations will need to be adjusted. Because following Jesus comes at a cost, the cost of discipleship. See, the Sermon on the Mount is about creating a community of discipleship, a community centered around apprenticeship to Jesus. This is why I hope we talked about last week that you'll be joining one of our seven-week discipleship groups that we start next month. Because we can't be reformed in isolation. We need each other. May we be a church that admires the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek, and not merely the strong, the confident, and the successful. May we be a church that acknowledges our deepest desires, although they're malformed by sin, are pointing us beyond ourselves to Jesus and his kingdom. And may we be a church that counts the cost of discipleship. In the words of our mission statement, words we see every time we come into this sanctuary, may we become more fully devoted followers of Jesus. For our sake, for Jesus' sake, and for the sake of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beginning of this important part of Scripture. And Lord, we acknowledge that our values are a jumbled mess and that some of the things that we value most need to be reformed, transformed, put aside, changed. And God, as we prepare to come to the table of communion today, may we experience your grace at work as we eat and drink by faith, reforming us, nourishing us, and strengthening us. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.